Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 295, and today's guest is Scott Friend, partner at Bain Capital Ventures. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, data is the new oil. Well, it makes sense, as it is data and, of course, other technological advancements that are powering the growth and use of AI in different industries. But even with all the buzz about AI, data has been the key differentiating factor for companies and a strategic advantage for years and years. It has been a key component for Scott's success in the retail industry, going back to ProfitLogic, a company he co-founded, which leveraged data for its merchandise optimization platform for major retailers. As an investor, Scott shares another great data example from one of his portfolio companies, that being Rent the Runway, which went public in 2021. The company set up a data science and analytics team in the very early days of the company as a strategic advantage. It'll be very interesting to see what companies emerge with this platform shift to AI and how it will affect the retail industry. Scott will certainly be in the mix of it all as BCV recently announced two oversubscribed funds totaling $1.9 billion. So there's lots of dry powder to invest. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Scott's background story, including getting his career started at IBM and what this experience taught him, the full story of profit logic from how it got started to growing the company to a successful exit to Oracle, what led Scott down the path of becoming a venture capitalist at BCV, more about the Rent the Runway story, plus other investments like Miracle and Attentive, what he's targeting in terms of making investments and the importance of unfair advantages, advice on scaling a company and how you should think about your team and board of directors, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then what are you doing to build up your company's employment brand? If you don't have a content strategy, then it is very likely that you are just flying under the radar. The good news is that we can help. A subscription to VentureFizz includes a content playbook for sharing all the details on your company, people, and culture. We leverage all formats of storytelling to include video, podcasting, employee profiles, and more. Reach out to info at VentureFizz.com to get all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Scott. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because we uh, we met at the TechCrunch Boston event, which was fantastic. Bain Capital Ventures was hosting a lovely breakfast for the TechCrunch event, which was awesome. So um, I was excited to talk to you because I'm certainly familiar with you as a venture capitalist and a lot of uh, the portfolio companies you've invested in, as well as you as an entrepreneur. But um, before we get into your background story, I did want to talk about something that, you know, as I was doing my research and kind of going through the backlog of information about you, I found a podcast that you did with Harry Stebbings back in 2017. Now you are specifically focused on the world of you know commerce and retail, and you were talking about the use of AI in 2017. Now AI is everywhere; you can't escape it. It's just constantly, constantly, constantly being mentioned. Yet you were thinking about this way ahead of where you know the mark. You know you were skating to where the puck was going, not to where the puck is. Right, uh, the Wayne Gretzky uh, analogy there. So I, I wanted to talk to you about the current state of your world and AI and like, what's like, where is commerce and it relates to AI? Well, it's, it's an ever evolving story and um, you, you're nice to presume that I was, you know, prescient in my commentary in 2017. I think the reality is I was drafting off of a lot of what I learned from some great entrepreneurs, you know, that we have the good fortune to back 
in that era and then even prior. And, you know, in the in the 2017 era, we had invested in a company called Semantic Machines, one of my investments with a local entrepreneur, Dan Roth, who's a multi-time, incredibly successful founder. And he had been an innovator in the world of voice-related artificial intelligence, natural language processing, and computer understanding of voice, and had built a company and sold it in that space. And years later, started Semantic Machines to basically reinvent Siri, uh, essentially, for lack of a better term, and do it in a way where you could be truly conversational in your interactions with the machine. And that means the machine understands your words and, and can translate and understand your questions and give you relevant answers back. And, you know, Dan and team innovated on that dramatically in that era, ultimately sold the company very successfully to Microsoft and became the core of the group at Microsoft that began or continued the level of innovation that's now led to, you know, this current state of artificial intelligence um, that we're all that we're all chatting about. Um, so we kind of had a front row seat five years ago. I feel like I had a front row seat 25 years ago when we started Profit Logic back in 98. What, what is now called AI was sort of called big data and analytics. And we were taking huge amounts of data. In this case, it was point of sale data from retailers, terabytes of data, which was a lot at the time, and using machine learning to understand patterns in the data. And we use that to help retailers make better decisions. Um, that really hasn't changed. Um, the world has evolved, computers are faster, the size of the data sets are much, much larger and richer. But basically what AI is doing today and, and what it's doing in commerce today is taking huge data sets and applying algorithms to it so that it can understand what's in that data and then spit things back that are useful for users. And so that, that has lots of implications in the commerce world. Um, I think the most interesting at the moment are being... Um, created by vendors, technology companies that have unusually unfair advantages with the data sets that they're sitting on. So I'll give you a couple examples because the these large language model, foundation model capabilities are available to anyone. Um, and so what's gonna allow one retailer or brand to be more effective than another? Well, if you look at companies like Attentive Mobile, Attentive is this SMS messaging platform that 8,000 brands use today to send us messages about stuff we love and may want to buy, they they have sent over the last three or four years something like 1.5 trillion messages. It's wow. a huge, ridiculous <laughs> number. And that, that data on what types of messages work with which brands to what kind of customers when is an unbelievable training data set to use to build AI that can help customers send messages automatically, maybe mm -hmm. write those messages for them. And they've actually launched some of those products. Similarly, soon as a company in our portfolio, that's like a photo photo studio in the cloud and several thousand brands use Suna to photograph their images because they need images for their websites. Well, Suna is sitting on probably the richest data set of product photos from the internet of anyone around. And not just any photo, but photos that are used for commerce where Suna has an understanding of what converts well and what doesn't and why. And they can use that data to train AI to augment photos more effectively. And so I feel like what, what we're seeing, starting to see and are going to continue to see in the commerce world over the next couple of years 
is vendors that were already helping helping retailers and brands innovate, taking advantage of the data they're sitting on because they've worked with hundreds or thousands of those brands and retailers and using it to make the thing they do even more effective. That's it seems like we're just at the cusp of all that happening. It totally does. And as you highlighted, it's just like a progression of computers are getting faster, you know, but data's maybe sets are larger. But as we're going to learn, <laughs> your company profit logic was doing this, you know, just different, right? But it was taking a large data set and, you know, optimizing it for retailers. So, so we'll get into that in a little bit. So, but it just, it's interesting to see how this is um, an evolution, but it's not like necessarily revolutionary. It's not like a change of data I, I and using think it. The yeah, I think for consumers who have just discovered ChatGPT, it feels like a revolution. Right. Um, that, I that think for, is true. For, yeah, for participants in the ecosystem, it is certainly an evolution. That said, the the pace of 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 innovation over the last five years has accelerated, yeah. and that has been a function of computing power. Um, these GPUs that are designed specifically for sort of computationally intensive AI-like stuff, originally designed for graphic image stuff, um, that computing power has grown dramatically. And the size of the data sets that can, can be absorbed has grown dramatically. The idea that you can take everything that's ever been published on the internet and consume it and make judgments and, uh, around it is like sort of kind of mind-boggling, and yet that's that's where we're at. And the implications of that have been this acceleration in capabilities that even consumers can use now. Yeah, uh, it's exciting to see what happens. So let's rewind the clock. So where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Um, I grew up outside Chicago. So I'm a, a Midwest kid, uh, one of the few remaining Cubs fans, maybe the only Cubs fan on the East Coast, <laughs> even though I've, I've been here 30 years and my, my kids have all grown up as as Boston sports fans, been a, a rough thing to be over the last couple nights. Uh, oh, actually, um, yeah. Um, but um, but grew up in Chicago. I uh, have a bunch of family still there. Um, you know, nothing that notable about me as a kid. Um, was a tennis player growing up, and kind of spent a lot of time doing that all through college. And kind of always loved math, and so was kind of into math and computer science and. That was that was kind of kind of my story. So you studied engineering and economics at Brown. So how did you get uh, your career started? Um, you know, I I graduated college in '87. A lot of my peers were going to Wall Street because it was kind of a hot time to go to Wall Street. Um, Liars Poker, the great book by Michael Lewis, had just been published mm -hmm. in that era. Um, and uh, I had some offers to do some of those sort of typical jobs, um, uh, investment banking and trading kind of jobs. But my older brother, who I'm very close to, had gone back to Chicago after college and went to work at IBM in sales. And our father had a boss who had been the assistant to Tom Watson Jr., the assistant to the CEO of IBM earlier in his career. And somehow, uh -huh. as a result, IBM was like in our family ecosystem is like a great place to go work. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think that was very true in that era, it turns out, uh, probably still is true, but it was certainly true then. And um, so I kind of followed in my brother's footsteps and went to work at IBM. And, and what were you doing there? I was in a sales role. Um, and, you know, 
and honestly, I, and I was there for six years and it was uh, a little like going back to school, meaning, you know, these big companies have so much to teach. And as much as I love um, people early in their career going to work at high growth tech startups, because, you know, there's an immense amount of experience you can get if you pick the right one and it grows quickly and um, you get a lot of responsibility in an early age. There's something about what big companies have to teach about how to be in business, how to operate kind of the right way with the right principles um, that I found invaluable. Um, you know, I think about a lot of my, the rest of my career and my point of view on building profit logic and my point of view as a board member in all the enterprise oriented companies that I've been involved with and how they build their businesses. And so much of it was lessons I learned at IBM about how to take care of customers, how to put customers first, how sort of doing whatever it takes to make customers successful always pays off in the end. And that just kind of got drilled into me through really great training at IBM. All right. So then you went to Harvard Business School. So why'd you decide to go back to B school? Um, I'd actually applied and gotten in about three years into my tenure at IBM, but my brother also got in at the same time. And at that point, I thought enough is enough. We've been doing the same things uh, a lot in life, and that felt a little too close for comfort. I mean, we were even in the same branch office at IBM for those three years. Um, so I decided not to go to business school at that point, stayed at IBM, had a great another couple of years of experience. And then reapplied. You couldn't defer back in that era, but reapplied. It was actually, I'll, I'll never forget. I remember pulling out my application from the first time I applied um, and looking at it three years later and being like, oh my God, what a joke. All these things <laughs> I said sounded so naive and inexperienced. I'm sure if I pulled out the next application now, it would, you know, I'd feel similarly. But um, it felt like a good stepping stone to change paths. Basically, I, I felt like I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I didn't know what it was. Business school, certainly a brand name business school like Harvard felt like a great opportunity to learn and meet great people and, you know, experience a bunch of things that might influence what I do next. And turns out that was all true. All right. So what did you do after B school? Well, I, I wanted to go start a business, but I didn't have an idea. And I spent a lot of time my second year talking to people about businesses, like early stage companies. And there were sort of two types that I stumbled into. One type were businesses that wanted me for sort of the lofty role I thought I deserved, being a newly minted Harvard MBA, figuring I could go run any company in the universe. Um, and those businesses that I liked um, didn't really want me for that kind of role. And the ones that did want me for that kind of role weren't businesses I was that interested in. And so I didn't find one. And so I did the predictable thing. I went into consulting because that was like the biggest signing bonus and, you know, paid for my second year of business school, basically. Um, so I did management consulting for about a year. Uh, didn't love it. In fact, I think I was pretty horrible at it and um, left there to join a former boss from IBM at a startup, uh, educational software startup building, using the principle of learning by doing to build simulations, computer simulations, to teach things like customer service and sales. Uh, and so we were building these training applications at this time on CD-ROM. They were interactive video-based and selling them to big companies. Uh, and I did that for several years afterward and, and loved it. 
All right. So we've already gave a glimpse of uh, a company that you uh, co-founded, ProfitLogic. So talk about the foundation of that company. Like, How did the idea come to fruition? Um, how did it get started? Yeah. So the, the backstory on ProfitLogic is that um, I joined forces with the father of one of my best friends from college. So I was at a wedding of a mutual friend from college and um, the the parent in question was at that wedding also. He was not the parent of the groom or the bride, but he was a friend of that family also. And we had known each other for years and we just started chatting about his business. And he had a little boutique consulting shop in Kendall Square where he was consulting to brands and retailers um, to help them figure out how to better manage inventory, basically. Um, and he was using mathematical techniques to try to forecast demand more effectively. And he thought he was sort of onto something. He thought he had stumbled into something that could be scalable. And he knew that I knew a little bit about retail from my, my IBM experience. All my customers were, were big retailers. Um, and he knew I knew a little bit about math. And so he invited me in to take a look. And, and I was, I was pretty blown away by what he had built. Um, and kind of one thing led to another and we joined forces. It was just, uh, it was a two person shop at the time, little boutique consulting firm. And the big question was, you know, was he comfortable and was I comfortable taking a profitable little consulting business and turning it into a wildly unprofitable high growth software company. And, uh, but we didn't exactly know that's where we were headed in the moment. And I was intrigued by the idea of helping him build this business. And so I joined. That company, that company was called Technology Strategy Incorporated, um, which basically was three words that allowed you to do almost anything. Right. And <laughs> um, and there, there's two really funny stories from that era. Um, the 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 first, I mean, the, the way I tell the story is what I really did when I joined was simply go to the handful of customers, including Hills Department Stores and and TJ Maxx that were consulting customers of, of the founder and just add a zero to what we were charging, um, <laughs> essentially. Um, yeah. And because the stuff was so valuable and we weren't charging that much for it. Um, the other thing that happened was, you know, I started actually trying to talk to people about what we were doing and get feedback. I, the, the first week I was there, I sat down with, with um, my co-founder, his name's Michael Levy, still alive. He's 93 years old. Um, and Michael had been, um, he had been part of, he'd worked at Raytheon in their aeronautics division and been part of the Apollo space missions. Um, oh, wow. there's a great scene in the movie, a great scene in the movie, Apollo 13, um, where for anyone listening to this, who's seen that movie, if you haven't, you should watch it, but there's a scene where they're up in space and they can't get back down. And, they call all the engineers in the middle of the night who had worked on the lunar module and they put everything on a table and sort of say, here's what they have up there, like figure out how they can fix the thing they need to fix. And Michael was one of the people that was called. He was there in the middle of the night helping. He had worked on the guidance system. And so he was like a brilliant engineer and mathematician, but he wasn't a natural sales, sales or marketer. Mm -hmm. And the first week or so after we joined forces, I sat down and I said, well, tell me more about who you've talked to about what you're doing and what their reaction was. And he reaches into his desk drawer and he pulls out a shoebox. And in the shoebox were like 
50 or 60 note cards, like three by five size cards. And he, he started thumbing through them and he handed them to me. And I looked and each of them was handwritten and it had a, it was like a, a little form that was filled out, handwritten. It had a name and a title, name of a company and a phone number and an email. And this is 1998, by the way. So even email was not like all that, you know, not hugely prevalent. And um, it, the first one said, you know, Joe Smith, VP of merchandising, Sears and Company. And the next one said, you know, Susan Johnson, senior VP, merchandise planning, Macy's. And like the list went on. And I'm like, right. what are these? And he said, well, you know, once in a while, I send out these one page flyers just to everyone in the industry who I can get an address of that explains what we're doing. And there's a little dotted line. You can cut out the corner if you're interested and then fill out this form and send it back. Oh, my and I'm God. Like, you mean all these people, <laughs> these senior executives in the retail industry took the time to read your flyer time. and then write Mail all it. their info down and cut out and send this back to you. I'm like, what did they say when you called them? And he said, well, I haven't called them. And I'm like, what do you mean you haven't called them? And he said, well, I don't know. Look at this one. Sears, where's Sears? Chicago? I don't want to go to Chicago. Macy's? This is Macy's West in San I'm not going to San Francisco. Like he basically hadn't done anything with any of this. So again, my big innovation was to actually pick up the phone and call these people and go visit them. And over the course of the next year or so, while we continued to do consulting and get paid for it, we started talking to all of these retailers about the capabilities we had. And um, what we learned over the course of the year was that no one really believed that we could forecast demand for inventory, certainly not fashion inventory, and nor did they think they would buy a forecast from us, even if we could. But they did all say they had a problem that they wished we could solve. And that problem was markdowns. Every single one said, you know what? At the end of the day, the main thing I struggle with is we buy all this inventory, we never pick the right amounts, and then we have to mark it all down. Mm -hmm. And we take a bloodbath. And if you can help me with that, boy, that would really be valuable. And it turns out it was not a big jump from our forecasting capability to adding a level of optimization and helping them figure out when to take markdowns. It was basically airline yield management brought to the fashion retail industry. And Michael Levy had already been experimenting with this idea. We started productizing it. We were able to sign a few early customers to do it, to do it with. Jim Bree was, I think, our first. And um, the big break came about a year after we launched to Jim Bree and a few others where we were charging, you know, $25,000 a month for this, what was an early SaaS service, basically, before SaaS was called SaaS. And um, we were having a huge impact, like the value was massive. And we stumbled into JCPenney and somewhat serendipitously ended up working out a deal where JCPenney agreed to pay us $18 million. And, and uh, that really put us on the map. Yeah. I mean, we were a like million dollar company at the time. And we signed wow. a five-year, $3.6 million a year deal with JCPenney. On the back of that, we raised a pile of capital. Bank Capital was our largest investor on the back of that. And uh, we were kind of off to the races. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this earlier and you just alluded to it as well. I mean, it was early in terms of big data. It was called at the time, machine learning, SaaS before SaaS was a thing. And it just, I, I so 
I do remember, because uh, my background is a, you know recruiting, and I just would always talk to people, lots of companies, and ProfitLogic had great people. So I was really talking to people at ProfitLogic. And um, so th- like, so it would be like how you determine, like if you walk into a gap back in the day, or I guess still, if there's still a gap around, uh, you walk yeah. in, there's the stuff out front, but then there's the stuff in the way back that's been heavily discounted, right? The, so you guys would help decide that transition towards the back of the back of the store for the discounts. Uh, essentially, if you walk into yeah. really any store you walk into today, any apparel retailer, a department store, especially apparel store, when you see a sign that says 25% off or 50% off, how do they decide which items they're going to mark down right. and by how much? That's what our software figured out for them. And yeah. the difference between doing that with data and analytics and big computers versus doing it with a spreadsheet kind of by hand, it was like so easy to improve upon what they were doing at the time. Um, some weren't even using spreadsheets. Some were just sort of sticking their finger in the air and kind of saying, oh, well, it's not selling well. Let's give it one more week, you know, uh, or it's not selling well, but the weather was bad this week. Let's, you know, let's wait. And we brought some discipline and real analytic rigor to this markdown process. And the result was, candidly, we were we were literally on average improving gross profit for these retailers by 10 to 15 percent. So imagine that if you're take Ann Taylor, they were a customer at the time. If you're a billion dollar retailer, you probably have 50% gross margin. So your gross profit is $500 million. And we can we could prove that we can move that number by 10%. So that's $50 million of benefit. How much can mm-hmm. you charge for that? I mean, theoretically, you should be able to charge $49.9 million for that. But right. reality is we could charge about 10% of that. And so we had huge deal sizes. We were getting millions of dollars from lots and lots of retailers. And as a result, it became a really good business. So the as you alluded, uh, you raised capital, scaled the company, and then ended up getting acquired by Oracle. So what what kind of triggered that exit? Well, we had built good relationships in the ecosystem along the way, and and primary among those were the the big software companies who sold the ERP systems to major retailers. So those were the the systems of record that fed us the data, and. Um, the major two players in the world of retail ERP systems were um, uh, SAP, who had a subset. And the dominant player was a player called Retech, which was a small public company in Minnesota who got acquired by Oracle. And mm-hmm. when they got acquired by Oracle, they became Oracle's retail business unit. And Retech had competed with us in this niche of markdown optimization. Um, but never very effectively. We kind of kicked their butt. And I think they always kind of coveted us because Retech would sell their whole suite of ERP to a company like Nordstrom for a million bucks. And we would come in with this one thing around markdown optimization and get $4 million for it. And it would drive them crazy. And they would try to give away their markdown module for free and we would still get $4 million for ours. Um, And so ultimately they got very interested. Luckily around the same time SAP got interested and uh, we figured, you know, we'd grown the business to about 50 million. It was getting harder, not easier. Um, there are only so many large scale enterprise retailers in the US and Europe to go sell to. We did, and we just dipped our toe in the water in Asia at that point. But I think we kind of felt like it, getting from 50 to 100 was going to be harder than getting from zero to 50. And we got offered a good price. And, you know, ultimately it became a good situation 
for for the company and its investors and and all the people involved. So looking back, what, what were some of the big takeaways, lessons learned from that time? Well, I'd say, you know, you hit on one earlier and it sounds so trite because um, everyone says it, but it's really interesting to see it in action. It's so much about the people. Um, you know, the early days of ProfitLogic, we had the good fortune to attract just like killer great athletes. You know, people that could wear a lot of hats and do marketing one day and product management the next day and customer success the next day and, you know, just kind of make it all work. Um, lots of lots of heroic acts, which are often necessary in an early stage company. Um, and we had a lot of those. Um, the hard part is those kind of people, building a company with those kind of people is is fun and exciting. It's often not that scalable um, because ultimately you have to like kind of get organized and structured and and hire people that have like deep experience in one narrow thing as opposed to kind of being a, a jack of all trades. And so my first big lesson was, boy, we went a long way hiring great athletes. My second big lesson was there is a point at which you need to hire people that are really deep in specific disciplines. And, you know, the biggest stroke of luck on that front was hiring Tom Evelyn as CEO. Tom had been a CEO of a local company, database company. Um, we, longer story I won't bore you with now, but my management team and I, none of us had actually done any of the things we were trying to do before. I realized I had to layer in senior people above pretty much everyone. And I figured the only way I was going to do that is by raising my hand and saying, I'm going to do it to me first. And so we did a search, took us a very long time, ultimately stumbled into Tom. I can't even remember how the heck we hit it off, but we hit it off and thankfully he joined. And Tom and I then continued to build the business together and hire a bunch of other great senior people. And, um, you know, I'm sure we would not have been as successful in that next chapter at Profit Logic without his support. And Tom, as you may know, went on after Profit Logic um, to uh, to run Demandware and took that public and then sold it to Salesforce. So, uh, and in fact, I'm having breakfast with him tomorrow morning. <laughs> Very cool. All right. So after the transition into Oracle, what led you down the path of becoming a venture capitalist at Bain? Yeah. So, um it's so funny in the rearview mirror. You know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I spent a year at Oracle, um, kind of had to stay, uh, and I actually really enjoyed it. I learned a ton being there for a year and sort of seeing how that company operated from the inside. Um, and one of my big learnings, by the way, was how straightforward it is for little companies to kick the butt of big companies. Like you never realize that when you're a startup, you think you're always have this fear and loathing of, of the big technology giants and how they may squash you. And the reality, at least my experience, was that we we made more decisions in a week at ProfitLogic than they were making in a year at Oracle. We released more code in a week than they were releasing in a year at Oracle. Like we just could move so much faster. And I never really understood that until I got on the other side. And so there was a lot of great learning on that front. Um, I thought I was going to try to start another company in the commerce technology arena, leveraging what we learned at ProfitLogic and all the great relationships we had. Um, hadn't quite landed on the right idea. And around that time, the folks at Bain Capital Ventures, who had been my investor, were thinking about raising a bigger fund, their first $500 million fund. At the time, their first two funds had been 250. And they wanted to hire another partner or two. And so they asked me if I wanted to join as a venture partner, which was kind of code for 
come here and see if you like being an investor and see if we like you and see if you're any good at it. And, you know, let's, let's evaluate over the course of a year. And I joined and that was 17 years ago. Um, and uh, candidly, I didn't like it that much when I joined. It was really very different rhythm, very different type of work than what I'd been doing in that prior chapter of my career. It took me a long time to feel like I was being productive and getting good at it. Um, but fortunately, stuck with it and had a lot of great mentors and support. And, and uh, you know, here I am still doing it. Well, one of your first investments, if not, was it your first? Was a great investment. <laughs> so, um, Rent the Runway? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's the first one I'll admit to. <laughs> yeah, there were, there, were, there were a couple others around that era that didn't work out so well. Um, okay. Kind of classic, classic rookie mistakes. Um, but Rent the Runway so, was, you know, on the long list of lucky breaks in my life. Um, you know, that was certainly one of them. Uh, a lawyer in town, John Corey, who's a great guy, um, who often does legal work for really early stage startups, um, sent a note to one of my partners about these two women at Harvard Business School starting this fashion technology startup. And uh, my partner sent it to me because he knew I knew something about retail and the fashion world. And I went over and met them. No, in fact, they came to our office the first time, now that I say that. And I was blown away by Jen and Jenny, the founders, like right off the right off the bat. They were just both so unbelievably impressive in how they were thinking about building the business and just their personal characteristics. And so that got me intrigued. And I luckily knew enough people in the retail world to be able to do some quick homework. I called the head of merchandising at Bloomingdale's and the then president at Neiman Marcus. And I shared the idea with them about this, you know, company that wanted to have women rent dresses instead of buy them high-end, you know, fashion dresses. And I figured they would both tell me this is the worst idea in the world and it's never going to work. And in fact, they both said the exact opposite. They said, you know what? And they almost said, they, they almost verbatim said the same thing. They said, you know what? In our better dresses department, the really high-end stuff at Bloomingdale's and in Neiman's, um, our customers buy almost everything they buy on Friday and half of it's returned on Monday. Mm, mm -hmm. Why is that? They're already renting our stuff. They're just doing it exactly, illegally. exactly. Yep. Yeah. And so their feeling was, boy, if you could legitimize that behavior with a cost-effective option that allowed women to wear these, you know, beautiful items that they really covet, it probably would work. And so we that caused us to lean in a little bit and. Um, we spent a lot of time with the founders trying to map out what this whole business would have to look like to scale. And we knew it would be incredibly operationally intensive and incredibly capital intensive, um, which probably rightfully should have scared us away. Um, but we also thought that if we build it successfully, it's going to be very hard to replicate um, for those reasons. And that is, you know, come true uh, in spades over the years. Um, yeah. So that was a lucky break. And that's been a 12 or 13 year journey at this point with an amazing founder and founding CEO and team. And um, now, you know, as a public company, my hope is that, you know, public investors realize, you know, what a great future this company has. So uh, I guess two side notes here. So, um, you know, I, I mentioned before I was a recruiter and one of my customers in the early days was Rent the Runway and they were 
hiring a whole analytics team. So I was helping out with that. And they, I can't remember, was he a profit logic guy that they hired for as their yeah, chief DJ. scientist officer? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I was helping him out and I was just, at first I'm like, what this company is doing, what they're, they're building an <laughs> analytics team, but you know, again, ahead of their day, like head of their time using data. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, again, this was the foresight of the founders and, and luckily I was in a position to be helpful at that time. So they knew, they realized that they were going to have more data on customer preferences, mm -hmm. customer size, fit related attributes, et cetera, than any fashion retailer ever would. Um, because they're going to be running these items and getting feedback and running more and more and more. And so we knew early on that we needed to build a robust data science capability. Um, and I happened to have built a company full of data scientists just prior. Uh, and so called a couple of my former colleagues and says, who's like the best of the bunch, you know, that's still around and available. And VJ was on the top of everyone's list. And VJ became employee number nine, I think, and Rent the Runway ultimately built up that whole analytics team that you helped him hire. And um, candidly, VJ and team architected almost every major system that that company ran on for, for the first decade of its life. Much of that's been re-engineered for much, much larger scale over the last few years, but no, no, no chance we would have made it without the work that he, you know, helped lead. So, so this was one of your first investments, yet you see it through the full life cycle to an IPO. And to top it off, it's the first company to go public with an all-female CEO, COO, and CFO. Yeah. So what was cool. that day like? Uh, the IPO was great. Um, it was during COVID, so that was weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. <laughs> I, think we were all, I think we were all wearing masks uh, in and out of the NASDAQ. Um, but it was, you know, it was rewarding to see... Um, independent of this, of the fact that this was uh, a female-led team and company, it was rewarding to see these great founders and this management team that had been with them, you know, for almost the entire journey, you know, see something from literally the very beginning all the way through that kind of scale. Um, so that was, you know, my first experience with something like that and, and fun to be a part of. And then the fact that they did it by building you know, what today would be called a, a, a management team of underrepresented minorities and women is, um, you know, I guess all the more rewarding, um, maybe mostly because that wasn't their intent. They didn't do it because, you know, they said we're setting out to make sure that we have certain type of representation on the management team. They just said, we're going to hire the best people we can find, you know, that we know are going to be great at these jobs. And probably because the company was founded by women, they they were better at recruiting women than most people are, I think, than guys often are. And they found a lot of really unbelievably talented women to join the team who scaled with the company. And, you know, that continues to be true. We, we actually have a few men on the management team now, too. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, the bar is high. And the, I mean, the, I'd love to be a fly on the wall for the um, the board meetings because you've got Gwyneth Paltrow, Melanie Harris. I mean, just so many A plus players in retail and commerce, and it just uh, it, I, I I can't imagine like the amount of collaboration and just being a sponge of information would be so fun to to, to just listen in. Yeah, the, the the board's unbelievable in that company. Um, uh, we just um, uh, Emil Michael, who had been the chief business officer at Uber. Um, was just announced as our newest board member. Um, uh, 
which will be exciting. He's going to join his first board meeting with us in a couple of weeks. Um, Gwyneth, who's obviously a, a luminary figure in the consumer world, um, has been a huge contributor. We have a, a gentleman named Mike Roth, who ran most of the logistics for Amazon for 25 years on the board, uh, who actually helped us find our um, head of operations and logistics several years ago. Uh, so it's it's a it's a powerhouse plus a number of terrific investors. All right, so you've made lots of other investments. I mean, I, we could go deep into all these, like Jet with Mark Lore. Uh, we you talked about Semantic Machines already, but there's another company that I think um, is wildly successful. Yet because they're behind the scenes, people might not know of them, and that's Miracle. So what what is that company? Yeah, it's a super cool company. So Miracle, it's it's M I M I R A K L. Um, is a uh, a company that was started in France, headquartered in Paris, that um, was started by two very entrepreneurial guys who had built a marketplace business. They built a business that was an online third-party marketplace selling um, uh, entertainment software, you know, video games, basically. And that business they built in, in France very successfully and sold to Fnac, which is a big retailer in Europe. Um, and when they got to Fnac, not only did they continue to run their marketplace business, they were asked to sort of build out and run a third-party marketplace for the rest of the Fnac uh, businesses, a broad assortment beyond just the original business they were in. And they did that very successfully and realized, boy, this third-party marketplace model, this thing that Amazon had kind of pioneered in, in the States is really powerful because these big retailers have tons of traffic to their websites. They only convert one or 2% of that traffic to their core assortment. But what if they had this like endless aisle of other stuff that they could sell those people because those people are also interested. And what if they didn't have to carry that inventory um, and someone else would merchandise it, um, but the retailer could still get paid for it. And that's what third-party marketplace is all about so the Miracle founders, when they left Fnac, set out to build that software uh, in a way that could be used by others. And that's what they started doing about a decade ago. And we were lucky enough to bump into them, gosh, it must be four or five years ago now, uh, and led what was a Series C round of financing there. And the company was at about 15 million of ARR at the time, had a plan, I think that year to grow to 30. Um, hit that plan probably differently in a different way than we or they expected, but they hit it and they've continued to grow from there. That company will be, I think, in the neighborhood of 150 million in ARR this year. Um, so very successful business, tons of retailer, large scale retailer clients in the US and Europe and Asia. But importantly, they also expanded into B2B. So there are tons of manufacturers and wholesalers now who have decided that this same idea of expanding the assortment of the things they sell to their business customers can be a valuable part of the service they provide. And Miracle is powering those B2B marketplaces as well. Yeah, it's such a cool company. They're doing really great things and rapidly expanding their team in Boston, which is cool to see too. Yeah, yeah. We have a big office in uh, Davis Square and, and you know, a ton of people, you know, the whole sort of America's headquarters is here is here in Boston. So it's um, been nice to have them nearby. All right. So Bain Capital Ventures recently announced back in February uh, $1.9 billion in new funds across two different funds. Um, so how does someone go about getting 
on your calendar? Like how does someone get, you know, your interest level to hopefully get that first meeting? And what do you expect out of that first meeting? Yeah, it's not that hard. <laughs> my um my 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 advice to founders uh that I often give when people ask is that they are the scarce commodity, not me. Um, you know, there are a lot of people running around giving away money and there are not that many amazing founders. Um and a lot a lot of great ones out there, but they're they're the scarce commodity and they should, you know, recognize that. And in fact, uh I feel like and the best ones know this when founders are meeting investors, they should always remember this is a two-way interview process, not a one-way interview process. They want to mm -hmm. they, they want to be looking for the kind of people, person, people, firm that they can really work with for the next decade of their lives. Because often that's how long it's going to take, sometimes longer. Uh, and um, the fit between the individuals is a really, really important piece of the puzzle. I think that's sometimes missed or lost in this seemingly un, you know disproportionate process of, of one person having the money and the other person wanting the money but at the end of the day i think founders are the scarce commodity and, and we're all searching for great ones and you know honestly i'll i, I love meeting with founders um the, the only reason i wouldn't take a meeting is if the thing someone calls or emails me about is just not something i know anything about Right. And if it's something someone inside our firm does, then I'll try to direct them to someone who has some expertise in that arena. If it's something that we don't do at all, but I know another firm that or another individual that might be helpful, I'll obviously try to help direct them there. Um, but broadly, we cover enough landscape, I'd say, at, at BCB that we probably are up the alley of, of many founders. And certainly in the world of application software, data and analytics and commerce and marketing, um, you know, hopefully there's some stuff I know and I can add value to. And so uh, it's as easy as sending me an email and explaining what you're up to. And, you know, the odds are you're going to hear back pretty quickly. And then that first meeting, what are you hoping to get out of that? Is it, you know, that, I mean, it's obviously the intangibles of idea, market, team, but are you trying to get that sense of bonding from that initial meeting too? Yeah, a little bit of bonding and a little bit of just like a sense of the person as a human being, um, which is, you know, not always easy to do in one meeting. It, some people are better at uh, uh, kind of showing their authentic self in meeting number one than others. And there's no judgment in that. Sometimes it just takes more time. Um, but yeah, that is a big piece of the puzzle is trying to get a feel for, you know, what often gets called like the founder market fit. People talk a lot about product market fit. I think there's this interesting founder market fit thing. You know, is there a reason this person is doing this thing? Is it like, is it deep in them? You know, like, is it the kind of thing that they just can't not do? Um, often when I talk to people that are thinking about starting a company that don't know what they want to start, or they have a, a job opportunity and they separately have like an idea about starting something, my advice is, you know, look, if you want to start something, if you basically wake up every morning and it's all you think about and you go to bed at night and it's all you think about and you just can't not do it, then you should do it. But until you feel that way, I wouldn't do it. And I, and I know that from my own experience, like startups are hard. There's tons of ups and downs. And the only way you can be successful is if you're willing to irrationally live through the hard parts. And the only way you can irrationally live through the hard parts, and I say irrationally because you know, the, 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 the weighted average outcome during those hard moments is probably not good. 
And so why do you live through it? Because you can't not live through it. You love it so much. You just think it's like the coolest thing ever, even when it's hard. And I felt that way about my company, ProfitLogic. And, you know, I love founders that feel that way about what they're doing. So what ultimately gets you to the point of a term sheet and hopefully an investment? Yeah, then it boils down to, you know, you you hit on the, the most important factor, which is the person. And then the rest has to do with, you know, the size of the market, the kind of value proposition associated with the thing they're building. Um, often, you know, I find there's an important question around what unfair advantages they have. You know, is there some unique IP? Is there, are there some unique relationships they have in the ecosystem? Uh do they have an insight about something that other people don't have because of their past experience? Like something that gives them an unfair advantage. Um, I need to feel in order to like kind of hang my hat on it and defend it to my partners and and, and forge ahead. So we talked about uh, scaling. It was you know, profit logic and right, the runway and it's scaling is hard. So you kind of hit this point where you're growing a team, growing market size, customers, Salesforce, like there's a whole lot that goes into scaling a company. So what do you think are some of the key uh, lessons learned around scaling that entrepreneurs often miss during periods of growth? Yeah, I'd say, you know, first and foremost, and I talked about this with my own experience at ProfitLogic, um, I think founders hire experienced people too late. Um especially when you're doing well, it's easy to believe that you can keep doing what you're doing. And it's hard to take a step back and say, hmm, given where we're headed, who around the table here has sort of seen that movie before? And do we need to have some people around the table that have seen that movie before? And I think most founders in periods of scaling ultimately get to that realization. It's usually with some pain and agony um, versus trying to anticipate and kind of bring in some of those, you know, more experienced people sooner. Um, that said, if you do it too soon, you know, those people tend not to be very successful. Um, you know, so it's a balance. It's more art than science. But I think that is a, an important thing for founders to keep their eye on. Um, and, you know, the other, I'm not sure you can do much about in the moment, but, you know, during periods of scaling and when things get bumpy, it's really important to know who's around the table from a board standpoint and to have real support. You know, being being a founder and CEO is a pretty lonely situation. Um, I found anyways, and I had co-founders, which was great, but at the end of the day, as CEO, you're often left to make hard decisions and take hard actions yourself. And um, it really helps to have investors and board members who you really feel have your back. Very, very important. And as you mentioned before, it's uh, you know, it's important to have, you know, that right board in place, the right investors in place. I mean, this is kind of like going back to the last topic, but you know, the founder is interviewing the the investor just as much as the investor is, you know, spending time totally. to evaluate the 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 company. So yeah. All right. How about uh, a good book or podcast recommendation? Sure. Um, well, let's see. Um, I'm in the middle of uh, a really good book. Um, called <clears throat> called Those Angry Days, which is about what was going on in the United States um, just before we entered World War II and this sort of interesting battle that crystallized between FDR, who was president at the time, and Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator, who was a huge public figure 
and who was very much against the U.S. entering the war. There was a huge camp of people who thought we should not go defend Britain and France and you know fight against Germany. It's their battle, not our battle. And there was another camp that thought it's inevitable that if we don't, that war is coming here and we've got to engage. And so it's a really interesting uh, glimpse into the kind of the political and interpersonal dynamics in that era that don't feel too far afield from, from the machinations <laughs> That's what I was of, thinking. Of, of our current era. And that gets me to like my, you know, my favorite podcasts from the last few years are probably the Slow Burn podcast. I don't know if you've listened to those. I've heard um, of it, but I haven't listened. Yeah, there's a number of episodes, but um, a couple of them are sort of, you know, I listened to during the tail end of the Trump administration and they were really eye-opening. One was about Watergate and the Nixon era. And the other was about um, uh, the Whitewater controversy during the Clinton era. And, you know, one was focused on Republicans doing bad things and one was focused on Democrats doing bad things. So there wasn't like a particularly political bent um, per se. And honestly, you know, two different chapters of history, you could have literally replaced it all with what was going down with Trump in that era when he was being investigated, special counsel, et cetera. And it was like exactly the same. And it was somewhat encouraging. You should, they're, they're really incredible podcasts. There's tons of really rich history there that I don't think has come out in, in, in the books or movies about those topics. Um, but what's most incredible to me is how similar the histories are. And it kind of made me feel like we weren't in as bad a shape as I felt we were prior to listening to those because we kind of survived these, what seemed like horrible political dynamics in the past and got through them and the country lived on. And it sort of made me feel like our institutions are stronger than any individual who might, you know, do some not, not so good stuff along the way. And I hope that's true. Interesting. I'll definitely have to check them out. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? Um, I like being outdoors a lot, which is, you know, makes January and February not my favorite months in Boston. Um, but I, I do a lot of outdoor stuff. I love to ski. Um, I've gotten addicted starting during COVID. I got addicted to playing paddle tennis, which is a yeah. good winter outdoor sport. You can play in the freezing cold. Um, so my body hurts a lot from that, but I do that a lot all winter. And uh, then I just, you know, run around watching a lot of my kids sports games in between. Very cool. Well, Scott, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously, all of the great advice you've shared and obviously the great work you're doing as an investor. Great. Thanks so much for uh, having me on. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.